This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to the Try Fail Learn Podcast, the podcast all about professionals and the lessons they've learned through the years. In today's episode, we have Cliff Frazier, a special operations senior instructor for the United States Department of Defense. I have to say, this is one of the coolest interviews I think I've done, or at least one of my favorites, just because of the nature of the conversation. Cliff and I clicked really, really well. Um, He's a great guy, and I hope you guys really enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here we go. Cliff, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to chat with me. So why don't you go ahead and start and uh, give yourself an introduction and we'll we'll get started. Well, sure, Josh. Thanks for having me, man. Um, this is actually the first podcast uh, that I've been a part of, man. I'm really uh, appreciative uh, that you reached out, man. I think this is going to be great for both you and for I. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm Cliff Frazier. I'm uh, 42 years old, um, been in the military uh, for about 24 years now, uh, counting time uh, in both the Army National Guard um, from when I graduated from high school and was in college and then with active duty time uh, in the U.S. Navy with the majority of that being uh, in special operations. So um, that's that's pretty much who I am. I'm just a, a good old country boy. I live down in uh, Niceville, Florida now, uh, right by the nation's only uh, bomb school where I, I'm a teacher. I'm an instructor down there. So I teach different types of ordinance to guys and hopefully can keep them alive and, and save others, others' lives in the process. That's awesome. Well, thank you ahead before we get into anything. Thank you for your service to this country. It's, uh, it's an amazing country and I, I love it. I know you love it. And, you know, thank you for all the time and, and the risk and the effort, just all the work you've put in defending our nation and training people to go out and defend our nation. Um, let's talk about education. So, well, before education, actually, let's talk about young Cliff. You know, what, what, uh, what got you up in the morning when you were younger? What, you know, inspired you through high school or what motivated you ultimately to do what you did in your career? Wow. That's a, that's a good question. Um, and I don't know if I can really answer that completely. I, uh, what motivated me in my early life is I grew up playing sports. Um, um, I had a mother that was really, really big into uh, team sports. And so I played basketball, football, baseball, uh, ran, uh, did all those kinds of things, anything you could think of uh, in my early years. But once I got to high school, honestly, and I hate to admit this, but what motivated me was, was being popular and girls. And uh, it's kind of unique that, that I think that did get me to where I am now because I had a really bad GPA. I had about a 2.4, I want to say, when I graduated from Bunn High School, which I barely graduated. I actually had to go to a night class in Raleigh, North Carolina, in order to pass English, uh, of all things. And my mother, you know, she was one of the most intelligent women I've ever known in my life. And I don't just say that because she is my mother. I mean, all of my friends agree. Uh, she said, hey, you got you got to grow up, man. You know, so you need to go to college or you need to join the military. And I thought, well, you know, I can I can do both of those. So uh, I went into the Army National Guard uh, at 17 years old and went through their boot camp and their you know advanced training and then came back and was assigned to a National Guard unit 
where I attended a two-year university and had a 4-0 uh, my first two years of college. Uh, just it's amazing what you know people yelling at you and, and you know demanding standards of you does. Uh, so I did that and then transferred to a uh, actually I mean you want to get into the academic part I can go ahead and continue on there if you'd like. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So I uh, went to Lewisburg College. It's a little bitty two-year college uh, in Lewisburg, North Carolina. That's about an hour outside of Raleigh. And uniquely, uh, it was a very expensive college. And I wanted to be a self-made man. So I used my benefits that I got through the National Guard to pay for my two-year degree. And I transferred to East Carolina University, the Pirates out in uh, Eastern North Carolina in Greenville, and got an undergraduate degree in exercise physiology. And by that time, I had incurred a significant amount of student debt. And I didn't want my parents to have to pay for that. I wanted to be self-made. And I thought there was something to this whole military thing. Um, I was kind of scared about the prospect of going into the civilian world because I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, my undergraduate was in kinesiology. Uh, I had the opportunity to potentially attend medical school, but I don't really have a good bedside manner. So I didn't think that was going to be something that was really going to be for me. Uh, so I thought, you know, there was something to this whole military thing. I've spent six years in there. I advanced very quickly. I'm, I'm pretty decent at it. Uh, the three big things in the military, you know, are be on time, you know, be in the right uniform and, and have a positive attitude. And I did those things. And I thought, well, let me try that again and then join and, and pay off all these student loans. And then let me, you know, go into a, to a three-letter agency or something. I, I had started to get a little bit of an interest in law enforcement was looking into uh, the FBI or the DEA or even, you know, the CIA, um, you know, if it worked out and thought, well, let me join the Navy because uh, in the Army, I was always in the woods. And I thought, well, maybe if I'm in the Navy, I'll be uh, around the ocean and be around the beach because, you know, ships don't just go around in the middle of uh, middle of land. So I joined the Navy and I joined the Navy as actually as a, uh, as a military police officer. And I had to go back through boot camp again at 25 years old. Um, that was a unique experience because when you're 25 going through boot camp, you're essentially a grandpa. You know, I mean, I think of that as being extremely young now, but at the time, you know, I was an old man going through and I didn't tell anybody that I had been in the reserves or anything like that. Um, and I just went through regular boot camp again for the second time and did that and went to an advanced training for, to be a military police officer. And, and, uh, once again, excelled at that just because I cared. And uh, went to Charleston, South Carolina, uh, as a military police officer. And when I got to the unit, they they found out, you know, that I had a I had a bachelor's degree, and I was in shape, and uh, I, I was, you know, I had won some awards and things like that that a lot of people don't win when they go through training. And so they they put me in a training environment. Essentially, I, I didn't even ever run around and be a, a actual real police officer. I I taught. I was a teacher, and. Um, really wasn't my thing. I, I kind of enjoyed it, but got me thinking about, you know, maybe doing something in, uh, in the special operations realm, you know, so started thinking about doing that kind of stuff. And, and in reality, I, I only thought there were two things to do in the Navy, uh, in, in special warfare and special operations. And one of those was to be a Navy SEAL. And the other was to be a Navy diver, um, like, uh, like men of honor, you know, and, and we, we now call them deep sea divers. Right. And so we distinguished them between combat divers. And I, I didn't really want to do either of those. Um, I didn't want to just dive for a living um, because I, I thought, you know, after doing that for 20 years, if I decide to stay in and stick around, then 
um, that might not be what I wanted to do. And uh, as a SEAL, I, uh, I didn't want to kill people for a living. You know, I'd always wanted to be a, a lifesaver. Uh, that's what I had done in the National Guard when the hurricanes came through and the floods and, the, you know, the, the snow and the ice come through. I'd always get out of college and get a cool little piece of paper saying that I didn't have to worry about my grades while I was out. And I'd go and rescue people for, you know, Hurricane Floyd floods and in the, uh, in the frozen snow and ice. And it, and it was great. I really enjoyed it. So I found out about EOD just by happenstance. And I was in the gym working out and there were some of these guys that came in and they were in really good shape and they had long hair that wasn't within regulation and they were calling each other by their first names and no ranks. And I thought, man, these guys, are, there's a SEAL team on board. Let me at least just go up to them and ask if I can work out with them. And I asked them if they were SEALs and they giggled and laughed and said, no, we're not SEALs. We're, we're EOD operators. And I, of course, you know, like anybody else, I asked, well, what's that? And essentially they said, well, we're the bomb squad of the Navy. Uh, we disarm IEDs and any kind of ordinance you can name, you know, conventional, underwater, ground air, uh, improvised, kimbio, nuclear, foreign, domestic, you name it. If it goes bang, uh, we fix it. And, and I was intrigued by that. Um, the only issue was, is they told me that I had to be incredibly intelligent uh, in order to make it through the school. And I thought, oh, Lord, man, here's a guy with a 2.4 GPA in high school <laughs> who's essentially going to sign up for something that if I don't pass, uh, I owe a number of years left in the Navy, mm. you know, and, and I only thought about maybe doing a career in the Navy if I was going to do it in the, in the special operations realm. So, you know, lo and behold, I, uh, I, I went through school and, and, and here I am now, you know, and that was, that was 18 years ago when I, when I did that. So, you know, counting my time in, in the reserves, I'm at 24 now, but uh, yeah, it seems like it was just yesterday, man. Wow. Learned, uh, learned a couple of things along the way for sure. And it's been an interesting ride. You hear a lot of conversations between people about, you know, having a career in the military and it being um, not all it's cracked up to be, so to speak. Um, and I know a lot of guys that are in there and, and they are chomping at the bit to get out as soon as they possibly can. A lot of those guys are, you know, deployed regularly overseas. Um, but what kept you in? Was it just the money or was there really you truly <laughs> loved? I mean, yeah, because the Navy pays super well, right? But um Right. What really kept you there going with a career? I'm just curious. What was clicking in your head? You know, honestly, long story, story short, the, the short answer to that is the people, man. Mm. Um, and, and I know that sounds kind of cliche to say, but let me explain. All right. So, uh, you know, Navy EOD guys, uh, EOD operators, we are the highest paid uh, people in the uh, in the military because uh, we get special pays. Uh, we get you know mixed gas diving pay. We get free fall halo parachute pay. We get demolition pay. Uh, we get hazardous duty pay. Uh, we get a lot of different pays. And then usually when we get bonuses, they're the highest bonuses that the uh, that the military puts out because, you know, the Navy spends roughly just about a million to 1.2 training us. And so if they can give us, you know, $100,000 bonus, $150,000 bonus to keep us around, that's a win for them. Right. So we do get paid more than the average sailor, uh, but it's not what I would get in the civilian world doing the same kind of job. Uh, so it's definitely not the money, you yeah. know, um, you know, surely not that, but I will say, and, and even disarming bombs, you know, there's certain things that are quote unquote sexy about doing that. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, really going down on an explosive piece of ordinance, that's not just designed to kill you, but some of these things are designed to kill tanks and helicopters and even underwater ordinance that's designed to, to break in half an aircraft carrier. Right. So that's really not where it's at. 
the idea of that is cool, but the types of people that you work around 100% absolutely is why guys stick around. You know, we call it the brotherhood. You'll see guys on LinkedIn, you know, make posts and they'll leave LLTB after posts. And people ask what that is. And essentially that's just an acronym. It's long live the brotherhood. Mm. And that's what it's about. It really is. When, when I went to war, um, despite what I would tell people probably in a book to try to make, you know, sell myself up, um, I didn't fight for America, man. I, uh, I fought for my teammate to the left and for my teammate to the right. Um, I had been with them for years. Um, I knew them better than I knew anyone outside of my immediate family. I knew their wives, their children, their favorite colors, uh, where they went to elementary school. Um, it's a very, very tight-knit community. And just the mentality that it takes for people to come into these programs and actually make it through, uh, they're exceptional people, man. I mean, I like to tell people a lot of times that our community, essentially, a lot of people look at the military as a whole as just an organization. And indeed, it could be that, right? But I also like to kind of kind of put it as that, you know, if you ask me where I worked at um, and I told you that, and this isn't a bad thing, I'm not putting this down, but you, I say, hey, I work at Walmart, right? This is what I do. Um, your average person might think, okay, well, I'm a stalker or, you know, maybe I, I'm, a, I'm a cashier or something like that, which is great. There's no issues with any of that. But what if I was an optometrist? What if I was a pharmacist? You know, what if I was a doctor? Because they work there as well. So even though it's one, you know, large organization, there's a lot of specialties that, that fall under that. Mm. And the special, opera special operations community is just that. Um, you know, we like to look at it as that a lot of your conventional military members do a fantastic and wonderful job. And we very much appreciate that, you know, but they're playing college football and, and we're playing in the pros. Right. You know, and, that's, and that's just the amount of training that we get, the funding that we get, uh, the types of people that we get. Um, it's, it's on a different level and it needs to be, you know, for, the, for the, the job that we do. So those types of people, you can't just go out and find. Um, they're, they're very unique. And we think it's normal because around our units, we're concentrated, right? But all the guys that come through, I mean, they're, they're one in, a, I want to say they're one in a million, but when you do the math, they're about one in 3.1 million. Mm. Uh, so um, that's why we stick around, man. It, it really is. So that's what's stuck. That's what's kept me around for a long time. The only thing that's making me retire, well, I'll say the only two things. Number one, my family, I got a five-year-old boy and he may come in the door in any minute. Um, and, and, and try to get on the podcast and take it over. Um, <laughs> but, but definitely my family. And then number two, unfortunately, I've incurred a lot of injuries. Mm. And, uh, and I take a lot of pills for it and, and, and get a lot of injections and shots and do a lot of therapy. And I mean, I spend an hour and a half in the gym every day and about 45 minutes of it is just old man stretching and foam rolling and trying to uh, keep limber and stuff. And it's just from, you know, having a lot of miles on me. Um, and it's, and I've enjoyed it. It's been fantastic, but yeah, if it wasn't for those two things, I mean, you couldn't kick me out. You know, I absolutely love what I do. I have a passion for what I do. I've never worked a day in my life. And, uh, I really hope that whatever, you know, that next chapter of my life looks like is going to be something that's in, in some way comparable, you know, to the passion that I have for the, uh, for the EOD community for sure. Yeah. You bring up a good point that I think a lot of people in civilian life don't understand. And it's that aspect of building a community, right? You, with the brotherhood that you have around you has built this natural support system that you guys have, which, which does improve retention. And I think that a lot of companies, right, are really big on... <clears throat> 
the environment or the the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Culture, right? The culture, the culture of their company, and I think that a lot of companies can get kind of lost in the sauce of that verbiage rather than truly building what they really should be focused on is building exactly the kind of environment that you guys have there. You know, this this tight knit group of individuals that are. I, I love that you said, and I mean, it might be a little controversial, but going to war and not fighting for America necessarily, but fighting for your brothers, you know, to the left and to the right. And those are the people you spend day in and day out with. And like you said, like, you know them better than most of your family. And um, I don't know, it's just an interesting aspect that that I'm relating back to the private sector of if you could build camaraderie like that, <laughs> your employee retention would be crazy good. Well, yeah, you would be you'd be unstoppable. I mean, the, the Navy EOD community has the highest retention of uh, any jobs in the Navy, hands down. And it's definitely not because we disarm bombs. Again, it just it boils down to the culture. And you're absolutely right with what you're saying. Um, when I when I was finishing my master's degree, I, I got that in strategic leadership, and we did a lot of case studies on these big organizations and why people were quick to come in the front door and leave through the back door. Mm. And, you know, you got these people in by offering these high salaries, these bonuses, but you didn't keep them in because their culture wasn't right. You know, it was cutthroat. There were, you know, things that were going on that were shady. People weren't trustworthy. And, and there were a lot of issues that revolved around that. And every time you replace an employee in the civilian world from my studies, I don't know this by you know personal experience, but it costs significantly more than it does to train them. You know, so one of the things that I can't really say that's great with the Navy, you know, that's in the civilian world is that I can't quit. Hmm. Right. Uh, I've signed a contract. Now I can drop my my badge anytime I want and go to the conventional Navy. Right. But I won't be able to get out of the of the Department of Defense of the military until the end of my enlistment. Hmm. Right. So one thing that's unique about the EOD community is that we're all volunteers. Nobody's ever told to do this. And at any point in my entire career, I can say, hey, I've had enough. This isn't for me anymore. And the Navy will respect that. Hmm. Right? They'll, they'll probably be upset about it because they've got a lot of money invested in me. But just the nature of the job you know, gives us the ability to be able to do that. And it doesn't do that to you know, the variety of the, you know, most jobs that you know, are in the Department of Defense. So, but, I, but I can't quit. I can't just walk out the back door. But the great thing with the community and that culture is nobody wants to. Hmm. You know, we do have our guys that are in the community that are, you know, can't wait to get out, but it's not because they don't love what they're doing. It's because they're looking forward to spending every single night uh, with their family, you know, with their kids and not having to move and using the, the bachelor's degree that the majority of enlisted guys in EOD come in with just because of the nature of the job. You know, I just put through a, a young student and I won't, you know, name names or anything for operational reasons, but, uh, this student was enlisted and uh, was an E4. Um, that's a you know a newer enlisted person in the military and uh, had a doctorate. Was a pharmacist. Uh, had an MBA and had a doctorate. Was a world like CrossFit champion. Uh, amazing things. And I, and I remember asking the student like, "Hey, you know what? This is great. I love the fact that you're here. Most of us here have bachelor's degrees, you know, and and we've had some education and some life experience before we decided to come in. You know, what are you doing here?" And uh, the person just kind of laughed and giggled and said, well, I can always go back to being a pharmacist. Right? I don't lose that qualification, but I want to see the world. I want to make a difference. I want to disarm the enemy's weapon of choice um, while I'm young. 
And later on, if I start to get bumps and bruises or I want to go back to being Dr. So-and-so, then I can easily do that. And uh, I, I love that. I thought it was fantastic. You know, and I even asked the person, hey, what would happen if uh, you failed out of training and you had to go to the Fleet Navy uh, as a doctor? And they said, oh, I'll get picked up for the uh, pharmacist program. It'll be fine. <laughs> and they're probably right. I don't know. You know, I never got involved in that stuff. But, yeah, that's exactly what it's about. You know, so I think that if these high level companies could create those cultures uh, that we have in our community, uh, they'd be unstoppable. You know, and, and that's that's exactly what it's about. It's about, you know, commitment. It's about dedication. It's about trust. Trust is huge. Right. I'm sure you've seen online. There was a, uh, a little short presentation that Simon Sinek gave one time um, about the SEAL teams and about the trust factor. Right. That was involved. And, you know, these guys in the top organization in the world, you know, one of the top ones is SEAL Team 6. You know, we know it as the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, but they're looking for guys that are trustworthy over guys who are really good at their job. And this is a job where lives are on the line and they put trust as a higher uh, factor, right? And so that's one of the things that we have in our community. When we go out and we jump out of planes, you know, we have, you know, to trust that our parachute riggers have packed that parachute correctly. You know, we have to trust that our jump masters have checked all of our equipment because a lot of times we're leaving, we're leaving that bird and, you know, I'm 225 pounds slick, you know, just waking up in the morning. So I'm easily 300, 350 coming out of that bird. And I got to make sure all of that stuff is right. And I literally put my life on the lines because when I leave that bird, that's what I've got. You know, when we dive, we dive to hundreds of feet, you know, underwater in bad visibility to disarm bombs. And we got to know that our diving supervisor and the demolition supervisor, they've done all the work that they can to keep us safe. And we have to trust in that. And that's a huge part of what keeps the community as tight, as tight as it is. You know, it's not a rank based thing. Um, it's a, it's a reputation. It's a last name based thing, right? The most, the, the best thing you can wear on your uniform, the most important one is, you know, the reputation of your last name in this community. And I love that. I think it's fantastic. You know, and that's at every rank at every level of every number of years of service It's that way. And that's what keeps mm -hmm. us around. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I'm so I, I told you I think I told you when we were on the call that uh, my grandfather was in the Navy, and um, yeah, sure I, think he, I can't remember how many years he did, but I think it was close to thirty. Um, and I every Thursday night I go over there and I I interview he him and my my grandmother about their life because they're just doing a documentary about their life and just making sure that I I am able to hold on to the memory that was the legacy that I come from. And uh, he was telling me about this time that he <clears throat> he had just screened for command. And he got sent off to um, a helicopter carrier off the coast of Lebanon. And he was, um, he was a USS Guam. And he was uh, CEO of this, this ship. And when he got on, the reason he was rushed over there was because the, the commanding officer that was running that ship before him had most of his officers and his department heads were not pulling their weight on the ship. And he was doing the work of like seven different men that should have all been been pulling their weight in this on this ship. And the guy had to be taken off the ship on a stretcher because it just was too much. He just broke down. The stress was was too crazy for him. And the same thing applies to like an organization. So long story short, my grandfather came out of that ship and turned it around. And one of his 
like speeches that he talks about a lot when I was growing up kind of makes sense now that I can connect it, you know, as adult after going through all this. But he told the guys, he said, look, I'm in charge of this now. And before I get taken off of this ship in a stretcher, all of you are going off the ship in a stretcher. I will not be running to the ground by you. You're going to start pulling your weight and you're going to do the work that needs to be done. And he turned that ship around and it was spotless and it operated perfectly. And they got the Marines in to do their job and they didn't lose a single person from the time he took command till the time they came back to the States. What, a, what an amazing job that that one person, you know, can, can do, right? Exactly, exactly. Well, but to the testament... Hundreds of people. Right, right. If you can't trust your men to do their job, I can understand taking it. And obviously, I'm speaking to something that we don't really know how it all developed and evolved over time. But in a lot of organizations in the private sector now, CEOs, department heads, managers, whatever it is, do not trust their people to do the job. And rather than dealing with that and getting those people to pull their weight and do the job, they just take the responsibility on themselves. And so. Exactly, exactly. But that makes so much that the whole thing about trust makes so much sense, even in the private sector, you know, people's lives are not on the line necessarily to make sure that, you know, the budget is published or whatever it would be. But I mean, when you don't have trust as a foundation of how you build a community, it can't run, you can't operate. I'll tell you, I, I wish I had the perfect answer for that. Um, but I can tell you, you know, there, there are definitely differences between the civilian world and my experience there, you know, going through college and, and having those part-time jobs and things Absolutely. like that. And being in the military, I mean, just in our in our case, in our community, you know, the EOD community, you got about a two-year pipeline. Mm. And that two years, you're essentially in an extremely long job interview. And that's what we tell our guys. And I was worried before I came on the uh, the podcast with you today because this morning I spent about the past uh, about two and a half hours this morning absolutely screaming at uh, at my teammates, at mm. my trainees. So today was a training day to where we don't do the conventional training. We did a lot of workouts and things like that. And uh, my guys weren't meeting the standards that I thought that they should meet. And uh, we take it personally. You know, these guys, they're, they're doing great things, but they're not some of them, not all of them. Right. And uh, so we had um, we had some some fun workout sessions, if you want to put it that way. And uh, a lot of mentoring, you know, was given a lot of uh, real stories were given. Um, and, and you don't get that in the civilian world. You know, I mean, we get just so much time and, you know, to, to train these guys up and, and they're going to be in unique ways. You know, you, you don't go to work in a normal environment and have to get in cold water and do push-ups and sit-ups and get sandy and dirty and, you know, have the opportunity to quit. Hey, if you just quit, then there's a uh, hot cup of coffee right here. It's not personal, you know, um, best of luck to you, uh, those kinds of things. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the big things that really sets, especially the special operations community apart, is you build that trust through time. And the only thing I can say that in the civilian world will be close to that is, is your pro, uh, pro sports teams, mm. you know, because they go through the same stuff when they're training, you know, to, to some degree, right? They're not training for war, but they're training for intense, you know, if you want to call it battle on the, you know, on the, on the gridiron or, you know, on the, on the diamond or wherever it's at on the court. Uh, to to compete against others. And so a big thing for us was just, you know, to try to grow that type of an environment. And it's holding a hard standard. It's being like your grandfather was. Hey, this is the standard. If you don't like it, leave. It's not personal. We don't coddle to you. 
you know, our community, 120th of 1%, very small, very unique. If you don't fit that mold, then see. There's a whole other part of the Navy you can go in. Absolutely. And you're going to do great. You're going to be amongst, you know, your top five percenter there. But here, you're not making the cut. And and we're able to do that. And, and it's unique because when I was yelling at the uh, the trainees today, you know, I, I brought up a good point to them. I thought, how, and, and this is just, you know, youth, right? This was us when I was in my 20s. You know, it was you younger in your, in your life. Um, I, I just, I, I was just dumbfounded that I had to scream at them mm. and yell, right? And get their heart rate up to get their ears to open. Because these things that I say to them, if I said them in the manner that I'm talking to you now, they wouldn't be heard with the same emphasis as if they were extremely tired and cold and sandy and I'm yelling at them and I'm giving them the same information. Right. And so that's where a lot of that trust really is built. You know, just by, hey, you know what, this guy's yelling at me, but guess what? He's right beside me doing the same thing. You know, it's not personal. He's yelling at everybody else. Uh, there's a standard that's set. He meets the standard himself. There's there's no hypocrites here. Um, if, if I mess up, I'm the first person to, to stand up in front of the entire group as a senior leader and admit it and own my mistake um, and pay the circumstances. If that means I got to do a bunch of push-ups or get in the cold water or whatever it is, I make that happen. You know, the guys won't, won't ask me to do that because I'm their leader, but they dig it when they see it. Right. Right, because they know I'm not special. Right. And you don't get that in the civilian world because CEOs aren't going to do that. Right. Now, maybe there's a few out there that would, and they'll get a lot of props for doing that. They're going to have very successful businesses. But your average CEO is above that. You know, they, they spent their 20 or 30 years building that company up. They're not going to go back down to that ground floor. Right. They're not going to walk by that guy that just got hired and pat him on the shoulder and say, hey, man, how are you doing? You know, whether or not they have time for that, I don't know. But that's where that trust gets built in those types of environments. Right. And, and you don't even get that. I mean, even in the healthcare industry, you know, I was talking my wife's a nurse practitioner. And I think that the medical malpractice industry now is, is billions of dollars a year. in medical malpractice. Now, we have to look up the exact facts. So don't quote me on that and say, hey, Cliff doesn't know what he's talking about. But I know it's a lot of money. And we've, I boiled it down with my teammates that the whole reason why is because they don't do stuff that we do in the military called after action reviews or an AAR. Now, what that is, is that when my team and this was whether I was you know, doing the conventional EOD stuff, I was on a dive team, especially when I was on the SEAL teams, it was all to where we finished doing something. And at the end, you came in, maybe you sat down and had a beer with your team and you went over every aspect of that operation and you did it from the bottom up. You didn't do it from the top down. You found your your lowest ranking guy, the guy that was in the arena, the operator that was on target, and you had him go go ahead and begin to to sound off about things that he thought were wrong. Now, that builds huge trust when you're a brand new operator. And you got these guys with 10 and 20 years of experience looking at you while you brief the entire team. Right. Well, you don't get that. And that's why the malpractice happens in the in the uh, in the healthcare field. The anesthesiologist doesn't talk to the surgeon who doesn't talk to the pre-op nurse who doesn't talk you know, to the uh, the post-op because they're too busy 
trying to make money that they just look at charts. And that's why I've had 14 surgeries and all of them I have, they have markings on the body part to cut. Yeah, because I had three guys, knee surgeries and they yeah, did it for these all These guys of them. are extremely intelligent surgeons and they have to know exactly which limb to begin to operate on because they do it so often and they don't get those briefs. Right. You know, they're, they're essentially a car mechanic for humans. You know, bring it in, I'll fix the front end up and then we'll get her out of here. And, uh, you know, it's unique, but that is what it is. And that's something that would be easily fixed, but at what cost? Right. It's going to be there's going to be a time cost. There's going to be obviously a huge financial cost. Um, and so maybe they're just willing to just pay the, you know, pay the malpractice. I don't know. Which I've found in, in a lot of areas of the private sector is the case, especially like when I when I was working for the Sanford Airport. I can't get into specifics, but there would be an incident where somebody would claim that we were negligent with our facility that they suffered an injury because of X, Y, and Z, and we would do an investigation into it. And that was a part of my department. We would sure. we were in operations, so we would go in there and just you know verify the facts or go back and look at camera footage or whatever it was to see what happened, were we negligent, what happened. And I, I honestly, I think I dealt with two cases where we were negligent out of I don't know how many I was confronted <laughs> with. And that the company would just, Pay. They would just. Yeah. It's it's easier for us to just pay them off than deal yeah. with with addressing this. It absolutely. So is. in a lot of cases, especially in the private sector, you don't have people who are willing to put in the time to solve the problem. It's easier to just throw money at the problem, which leads me to a point with with that I would like to ask you about with leadership. Right. I think this plays into the beginning of what we were talking about. Why you stayed in why you've stayed in the military all these years. Because when everything falls around you, when everything comes down to it, and it is life and death, I do not care how much money you make. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter what, what's, what matters when somebody's going to stick in and do the job that's expected is a person that's leading them and the people around them following along with them. I mean, it's been proven time and time again that that is one of the driving forces behind men who stay in the military for so many years, but the private sector is not willing to develop leaders like that. In, in, in a large capacity, they just, that's nah, not worth our time. Well, that's one of the unfortunate things, you know, about the private sector as well, is that at every level um, of, of rank that I've, uh, you know, made since I've been in the Navy, I always have to attend some sort of a leadership academy. Now, be that a week or be that a couple of months, depending upon, you know, as you advance up in, in rank, you attend some level of leadership training. Now, you know, I got the I got the degree in it. I'm also uh, an RBLPT uh, professional, which is a part of the Resilience Building Leadership um, Program, which is fantastic, by the way. Um, but you get that training in the civilian world. Essentially what people do, and I mean, I kind of make a joke about this, but it's really not funny at all, is that we take a guy who's really good at counting beans and we promote him to a manager that has nothing to do with counting beans anymore. And then we cross our fingers and we say, oh, please, Lord, I hope he's good at it. And that's unfortunate yep. because they're not willing, these businesses, because of the, the turnover, why would I invest this money in a guy that's not going to stay? 
And the leader would say, well, why would we invest, you know, not invest money in a guy? And then he sticks around. Exactly. It should be one of those, one of those things that's just like, unfortunately, these, these cases that you get that, that go to court for, you know, substantiated claims, there should be money set aside for leadership training. And when you right. look at the high level organizations, Lord knows the, the large percentage of, of times that it's because of good leadership, right? The, these guys that come in, you, you, join a, you join a job, right? Because of the idea of what you're doing. You stick around because of the culture and the environment in which you work at. Right. And, and that's just fact, right? That's why these people get lured to these big companies making all this money and two to three months later, and you can check in on people's LinkedIn profiles, they've already jumped to another employer. Right. It darn sure wasn't because the $175,000 job didn't pay enough. Right. Right. It's because they were getting beat up. There was no work-life balance. There was 24-7 calls. You know, they were working from home, and then they got called back into the office now, even though it's been proven you can work at home effectively. But now that COVID is going down, hey, we'll see you in the office again, right? Just because that's the norm. But it's not the norm anymore. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Right. And I'm not a, so I love working in office. And I think you would agree with this statement is that it's not necessarily that companies are having people come back to office space. It's the why, which I think boils down to the whole foundation of leadership is a, why are you doing this? And a lot of companies are literally just doing it because, well, that's what we've always done. So we're just going to go back to normal. The worst excuse in any kind of a, a company culture in history. Well, that's the way we've always done it. Right. Oh man, you want to you want to get some guys fired up in my community if you use that. <laughs> right. right. Well, perhaps we have been doing it wrong. <laughs> right? Exactly. Let's look exactly. at this thing from a different angle. Let's look at it from a different viewpoint. You know, and we're pretty good about doing that. But yeah, and I, I'm sure in the civilian uh, world you hear that a lot. Hey, that's the way we've always done it. Okay. Well, you know, technology right. advances, and so do humans. Right. We don't. We and not just really like caveman anymore. Right. You know? There's people that want you to, but. You know, based on that same analogy, I mean, I don't go to a bar, you know, if I was single and see a pretty girl and I don't hit her over the head with a big <laughs> stick and drag her back to my later. Well, that's what cavemen did. Right. And that sounds absurd. Right. So why would I eat the same way? It doesn't right. make sense. Right. Right. Yeah, we have to change. And, and there's a lot of aspects of the private sector where that happens uh, quicker than it does in, in a government job. Um, but on oh, a... Across the board, I've worked for many, many managers, right? You might find an inspirational company, you know, that has an inspirational leader or whatever that that will develop new ways of doing things and will always listen for the right answer. But most of my interactions with people who are not on the forefront or not in the limelight don't lead that way. And they don't drive innovation. They don't drive different perspectives. They they just stick with this has always worked for me, and we're going to do this until the day I retire, and I can just go home and well, sure, you know, it's comfortable. 
right? right? It's what you're used to. If I if I come into a business as a new manager or leader, however you want to say it, right? Because you know you manage programs, you lead people, right? But let's say that I come in and I literally just say, "Hey, Josh, man, uh, check it out, dude. Uh, today's my first day here, and things are going to change." What is your first inclination, just as a human being? Because this is just a this is just a human emotional thing, right? Because you it's know, going to be to resist. Is oh no, something's going to change. This is going to be bad, right? Right. Right. But what if the whole idea was is that it was going to be very positive? Hey, guess what? You can now work from home if you want to. You know, hey, as long as you get the job done, I don't care about clocking in or clocking out. Just do the work. You're getting a salary. Right. But people's first inclination to change is that it's going to be negative. It's going to be uncomfortable. And so for so these people that have been managing and, and quote unquote leading for so long, they're comfortable there. Why would they shake things up? What they're going to do is find the find the younger guy who has a great idea, and they're going to push that guy out. Especially if that guy's going to be innovative, and then perhaps come after their job, which they aren't guaranteed. Right. Right. When I was thinking about retiring, or not retiring, but uh, leaving the military a number of years ago, my wife and I had some family issues uh, with her side of the family, and so I had you know talked to a couple of different companies and submitted my resume, and uh, they said, "Hey, this is great, and this is impressive. You are extremely overqualified." We can't hire you because, you know, the people that you are going to work for are going to be scared. You're going to take their job. And that is, and that is, I mean, it's flattering, but it is incredibly sad. Incredibly sad. Yeah. You mean to tell me that I can come in here and in a couple of years, I got the job that you're doing that. Is that just not that critical? That anybody can do it, huh? Mm. Wow. Maybe I don't want the job. Right. I don't want to go home every day and feel like I'm not making a difference. Right. Right. And that's, I mean, you touch on a a good point there is a lot of people feel in their positions in their jobs or or whatever they're doing that what they do is really not that significant, is not that special. Um, I know I carry the title of COO for whatever that's worth. um, And I don't feel like my position is that significant either. Now, mine legitimately is not. Um, But with some people, they feel that way because I think it stems from a leadership issue. I think that a leader's first job is to cast vision so that the people under them understand the significance. So I kind of want to ask you though, what does that look like in a military role, right? Because everybody thinks the military is, you know, you give orders and people obey and that's it. You, you know, there's no questions, there's nothing. You, you just say it and they do it. But I don't believe that that's the way that good leaders in the military do it. I don't think they just say something and they don't actually relate because my grandfather was an amazing leader in the military and he would on a regular basis sit down and talk with the guys about their emotions and what's going on back home and how are you feeling about the environment and led them from a place of casting vision for what they were doing, the significance of what was going on. So talk to me a little bit about that in, in your role with the military. Well, well, surely in the uh, in the Department of Defense, you know, the, the big the big umbrella of Army, Air Force, Marines, Space Force, Coast Guard, Navy, all that kind of thing. Um, there is that idea of that. I say it and you do it right. And, and that's a real thing. You're taught that uh, from boot camp on that. Hey, if somebody superior to you says something that unless it's unlawful, then you do that thing. And, and you know, there are people that revert to that in the uh, in what we call the fleet, which is what I'm going to say the conventional Navy is, right? We just refer to that as a fleet. And they use that as a crutch, right? Oh, I'm your superior. Just do it. 
right? And don't worry about it. I will say in my unique community, uh, it doesn't really exist, mm-hmm. right? And if I ever get to a point to where I have to use my rank, I've already failed, right? Because now that's my answer. Do it because I'm this person, right? Not because it makes sense, not because it's the right thing to do, right? Not because I've done the math and this, and this jives, it works out this way, but because I am, I have been in longer than you, essentially, right? So in, in the EOD community, we, uh, we, we just, we, 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 wow. I mean, it's so even hard to explain. We work so much off of just, I want to call it common sense, man. Mm. You know, um, I like to think that people listen to me because I have a good amount of experience, but I'm also that guy that as an EOD operator, you know, at that 20 year mark with, with the deployments under my belt and everything that a brand new guy, uh, a badge wearer in my community would be able to say, Cliff, stop. And I will stop dead in my tracks and not take another step or move because that young man sees something that I don't. And it may end my life. Right now, I understand I'm in a unique position and that's not normal, but the thought process is the same is that this guy sees something and I have to respect that. Um, in our small platoons, we call them, they're usually about eight men. And um, when we when we have training, uh, it goes from the bottom up, you know, and we do that so that we can create these people that are going to come become leaders. And it just doesn't magically happen one day that they pin on a piece of metal that signifies a higher rank, right? Because that's learning through osmosis and it's not real. So we get these guys to come in and, and we put them in these positions in order to do that. And we either can nurture that or we can, you know, say, Hey, you know what? That's, that's not the greatest idea. Let's try it this way. What do you think? And, and we get all these tools through going through different instructor schools of how to, you know, break people down the right way and, and build them back up. Um, but yeah, that, that type of thinking, it's not, it's not really, it's not definitely not popular in the community, but it's, it's not even common. You know, if, uh, if, if I have, you know, at the end of the day, don't get me wrong, if I'm the boss and what I do say goes, but that's going to be based upon um, obviously a democracy, you know, I mean, I always ask the boys what they think and 99% of the time, uh, you know, the majority is going to win on that, regardless of what I do think, unless it's just something that I'm absolutely adamant about. And usually that's going to be based upon experience. And if I do make that decision, I'm going to explain to my guys why the decision was made. Right. And it may be a, Hey, you don't have to agree with me, but just hear me out type thing. You know, so, um, definitely not what the, the conventional, uh, you know, just movie goer would think that they would see in a military environment. Right. right. Now there are those times to where I would expect that if I was in combat, if I screamed at my buddy to get down, he would do so 100% without question, but that's not because of who I am. That's because of me being his teammate. Right. And that's a trust factor. That's what we talked about earlier. That's just a simple trust factor is, Hey, I don't have time for you to scream and ask why just do it. Right. right? And then later on you can ask why. Right. Right. And that's that that aspect of, you know, communicating things differently and in different settings and environments. It, it plays yeah. out differently. My it's wife loves to say, huh? yeah, yeah. My wife, she has a, a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and she loves, you know, body language and, and anthropology. And so she's always telling me about, you know, I can't remember what percentage it is, but much, much more than half of 90 uh, percent of communication is body language. Uh, that's uh, what it is. Yeah. 90 percent. Is that insane? Yeah, it's nuts. 
But yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense. It makes it sense. Is. It is very much it's so. eye contact. It's, it's it's inflection. It's crossing your your shoulder, your arms, or your shoulders. It's looking at a person, you know, in their general environment. It's just mannerisms, all those different things, and they're a huge part of, you know, uh, of what we do. You know, and I use that in everyday life. You know, in at at work as as an instructor. You know, as a teacher. You know, I'll, I'll pause for dramatic effect when I'm when I'm teaching something to get guys to think, hey, maybe this is serious. You know, I'll I'll raise my voice and lower it, and you know all those different types of things, which didn't change the English dictionary. Right. But get people to realize that, hey, there's there's a reason he's putting emphasis on this thing. And maybe it's important. Right. Maybe it's something that could kill me or more importantly, kill somebody else that that is depending upon us to be able to, to be proficient at our at our job. Yeah. 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 But communication in, in a leadership role, let alone a military role or combat, you know, I mean, it, there's there's just so many things that and have to be played out differently. Yeah. Um, have to be done differently. And, and like you were saying in the beginning of, of having to yell at, you know, your trainees and, and get them on, on task is, you know, a leader needs to know when they need to step in and change the strategy, right? Wow. And I firmly believe that a good leader is in tune with his, um, you know, his people or her people or anybody that they're leading. But there comes a time when the foot needs to come down. You know, yeah. and, and that needs to be said in a, a tough way or a hard way or whatever it may be. But Absolutely. yeah. So let me ask you for a, a young person, right, in high school or maybe doesn't matter. What would be your advice if they're thinking about getting into the military, Navy, Army, whatever it would be? Um, what would be your advice to them as far as getting started in a, a career with the military? I think the biggest thing that I would say is that the military is like when I was giving that Walmart reference earlier is look at the military as a big business. You don't want to just join the army or the Navy or the Marine Corps or the Air Force, right? Because that's saying, hey, I want to work at Walmart. I don't care if I'm an optometrist or a stalker or a cashier or any of the or, or butcher or baker or anything. I just want to work there. Right. So you really have to look at what type of a career do you want within that prospective service? And everybody has their reasons. You know, some some people are, you know, their family served in the Marine Corps. And so they want to follow suit and do that. And, you know, some people want to, hey, I, I like the Navy because they're around the beach or, or whatever the case is. I mean, that's a decision that they need to make themselves, but they have to understand, do I want to be in HR? Do I want to be in the medical field? Do I want to be, you know, in culinary? Do I want to be in law enforcement? Or do I want to, do I want to be in special operations? And don't go to a recruiter for the enlisted guys and take what you can get. That is a recipe for disaster. Right. I cannot tell you the amount of people that I've met in 24 years now of being in the military that, oh, I wanted to do this. But the recruiter said that this job wasn't available. And if I wanted to ship out next week, I have to pick this job. Right. You know, the military is a Department of Defense, but it is still a large corporation. So really pay attention to what you want to do and don't accept anything less. Don't go into the military to be a cook if you want to be a law enforcement professional, right? And, and, and recruiters will tell you, oh, you can transfer later on. And maybe there is some truth to that. But a lot of times there are a variety of factors that are at play that you might not meet. And so you're, you're stuck cooking food that somebody else would love to do when you want to be out, 
you know, writing tickets or, or, or holding the flight line. So, you know, look into what you want to do and, and really just do your homework. Right. I mean, we have uh, I mean, the, the highest level of technology in our life right now ever at our fingertips. And we use it to watch cat videos, man. <laughs> right. Look it up. Google it. Right. Look at the different jobs that are available and see what you know, what what drives you, you know, hey, is this does this look unique? Is this something that you want to get into? Is this something that you can use in the outside world? Right. That's something that's unique for me. I'm a bomb disposal expert. I'm really good at what I do. I have a great reputation in my community, but there's not a lot of jobs for that in the outside world to where I'm going to be home every night. Sure, I could be overseas and I could make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but I'm at risk. I don't have, you know, the backing that I would get from the Department of Defense and I'm away from my wife and son, which is why I'm retiring in the first place. Right. Right. If you're joining the military, you know, if you if you want to be a nurse, you want to be a doctor, get in that healthcare field, use your GI Bill benefits, right? Get that degree if you don't already have it and then transfer into the civilian world in the healthcare field and use those years of experience to help get you your foot in the door and to, to exceed your peers. Right. And, yeah. and honestly, the best piece of advice I could give you with that, too, is find a mentor. Mm. Right. Find a mentor. That is not a dead policy. That is a very real thing. I have about five mentors and they are fantastic. They're all essential, essentially big brothers to me. They're CEOs of major businesses. They're doctors. One of them is my neighbor. He was a, a retired Top Gun pilot. Um, they're, they're fantastic people and they feed me information based upon what we call tacit knowledge, which is essentially life experience. So think about what you want to do in the military. Don't settle for less and find a mentor. I'm telling you. And if you can't find a mentor that lives down the street, get online, get on LinkedIn. We're everywhere. Right. Right. Ask a question. You know, a high percentage of people will respond to you. And the people that don't, you probably didn't want to deal with them anyway. Right. Yeah, that ties really well into, we had Cyrus Callum on the show. Um, and he was talking about nurture your network was his his parting wisdom for that right. show. And it's it's about taking the people around you. And that's what this whole podcast is about, is about finding mentorship in anybody you can. And, um, you know, my grandfather was a really big mentor for me growing up. My dad was, my older brother was. So I've had, I mean, tons of mentors over the years. And the wisdom and life experience that they have passed on to me is it's been huge and humongous. So, and also to anybody who's thinking about getting into the military for a career, um, it's not just things like Cliff is saying, you know, he mentioned HR. It's not just, you know, you're cooking on a ship or you're cooking on a base or you're in special operations. I found a number of years ago that there are photographer positions for the Navy and the Army and the Air Force and because I'm a photographer. And so, you know, a couple of years ago, I was considering joining the Navy and that is an option out there for people. So yeah, that's great advice. So just don't don't go into the Navy thinking, oh, I'll just be enlisted in the Navy. The Navy has jobs that you do. That was yeah. something that my my grandfather had to explain to me about, you know, your rank is different from your... Yeah, in the Navy, a rate is actually a career, right? And the Navy is a little bit different than the other, than the other branches. So a rank is a, a level, a uh, basically just where you're at in the hierarchy of things. And there's the enlisted right. side of the house and there's the officer side of the house. A rate is a job. Right. Right. So, 
you know, you don't, you, you see it called an MOS. And that's the, what uh, I was right. looking for. Right. Yep. Which is a military occupational specialty. And the Navy, we call it a rate because we're different and we mm. want to be unique, I guess. It took me forever to figure that stuff out, leaving the army, you know, in the national guard and joining the Navy. Right. A steep learning curve for sure. You guys want to be special over there. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's what it is for sure. Man. <laughs> Some of it's historical, but a lot of it's just wanting to be special, you know? You know, I was having a conversation with my mom the other day, actually. And she was like, you know, your podcast is called Try, Fail, Learn. But when do you ever ask them when they failed? I was like, wow, wow, that's actually a really good point. I haven't. So I want to ask you, when is a time in your career or whatever you can think of, personal life, whatever it may be, that you failed big, but it taught you something really significant? Wow. Um, I guess uh, we kind of already talked about it, you know, uh, initially, but uh, when I was in high school, I wanted to be just a jock, you know, wanted to be popular and, and not caring about my academics because my mother, in all her wisdom, in my mind, didn't know what she was talking about, <laughs> you know, and oh, I'll get out, you know, I'll have a great career and a great job and I don't need to go to college or I don't need to have good grades or anything. I'll just land, you know, something by dumb luck and uh, and that'll work out great. And um, essentially just having to actually go and spend two nights a week and drive an hour from my home to Raleigh, North Carolina to attend night school so that I could graduate high school on time. All right. That was a big one just in itself right there because I'm this popular guy in high school. I'm this, you know, this kind of jock guy and, you know, I'm well-liked in my small town of, you know, only a couple hundred people. It wasn't that I was that cool. It's just, there wasn't that many people around. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm I am I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel just so I can get a, a high school diploma, which I couldn't join the military if I didn't get. Right, I, I, to do anything, you know. So that was definitely a you know a almost failure. I would say you know I didn't I wouldn't say that I actually failed doing that, but I mean that was huge for me to just as an eye opener of hey man being you know quote unquote popular gets you a whole lot of nowhere. Right. Yeah. So just learning that and, and going through the, the initial training and getting into college and realizing that, wow, if I only just applied myself and I studied that there's a direct correlation between that and how well I did. Um, you know, that was that was a huge part of it for sure. Uh, in the military, um, I've always done pretty well. Um, when, I, when I went through the EOD school, I was one of the one of the very rare people that get through without failing a test. They call us a unicorn when you go through. So. Um, you, you have essentially somewhere around, I mean, don't quote me on this, about 55 to 60 different tests you have to navigate and doing one very small thing wrong, like not touching the ground before you touched a piece of ordinance, right? Or not wearing your safety glasses or, you know, causing static into an ordinance item, um, can cause you to fail completely. Mm-hmm. And, um, for some reason I never made any of those mistakes and, um, and, and I did well. And, and I'll tell you, I think some of that is just dumb luck, right? Some of that is maybe the instructor looking the other way, you know, to uh, to get a glass of water or, or to eat his apple when I was on my problem, because there's no way I just happened to get through with doing everything perfectly. I just didn't get caught doing something wrong. Mm. Um, but uh, I almost got pulled off of uh, my platoon um, and my on my first team uh, because of my attitude. Right. Or at least I was told it was because of my attitude. I don't really know if this was just them trying to, you know, kind of scare me a little bit to get me performed just a little bit better. But uh, I was I was at a unit. I was at an EOD unit. I was brand new to the team and I was assigned to an East Coast SEAL team. And uh, we were doing a lot of workups and things. And I got pulled in by uh, what we call my LPO, which is essentially my manager, my immediate supervisor. 
and the officer uh, of the team. On all these platoons, we have seven enlisted guys and you have one officer. And they basically just asked me, you know, what my problem was. And did I think I was too good to be there? And um, did I not think I needed to learn anything? Or did I think I just had everything, you know, mm. nailed down and, and, and whatever that was. And it was an eye-opening experience, you know, for me because I had no idea what they were talking about. I didn't think that I put off that kind of an aura, you know, or, or anything like that. But, I mean, it was a very serious meeting. They weren't joking around. Mm. Um, it was eye-opening for me. You know, so I guess we could call that a failure for sure because I was putting off some vibe that they were picking up and I had no idea I was doing that. Mm. And I do think that to this day, I, I kind of try to give our trainees the benefit of the doubt for that because I can I can get heated at times when they do things, but I have to remind myself that maybe they didn't do that on purpose. Mm. Maybe they didn't know better, you know, and some of that just comes with time. Some of that's EQ, you know, and, and those types of, you know, buzzwords that we use today. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I would say that's probably, uh, the big failure. I have, a, I have a personal failure in my life. I really don't want to talk about it on the podcast, you know? Um, but it's definitely there and it's something that I learned tremendously from. It was incredibly humbling. Mm. Um, and it was probably the one time in my life where I legitimately had to look in the mirror and say, man, you have got to change. You have got to fix this. This is you. This isn't somebody else. All right. And man, you want to talk about eating humble pie. And it was, it was sour, man. It was bitter. Yeah. Um, yeah. But nonetheless, I, I remember that to this day. And I hope I don't make that same mistake. You know, again, I still make plenty of mistakes, but they're new ones. Mm. All right. You know, same stuff I ask my trainees is, hey, if you made a mistake today on a piece of ordinance, it's okay to make mistakes. Do that here in training, but don't make the same one tomorrow. Make a new right. one. Right. right. And hopefully that's what I'm doing as I navigate, you know, my 40s now. Right. Which hopefully is the goal of everybody is to not really? make the same mistakes over and over again. And right. unfortunately, you meet a lot of people who are making the same mistake every single day and they don't even realize it's a mistake. Um, but yeah, I, I've had those points in my life where I've you know had to step back and go, there is nobody to blame here but myself. Yeah. You know, there, there's nothing else going on here, but you're a jerk or you're an idiot or you made a, you know, you made a disaster of a situation that otherwise would have been fine. So, yeah, I mean, I've been there several times in my life before, but yeah, you don't make those same mistakes twice. You definitely don't make those. Um, so let's, uh, what is the worst advice somebody ever gave you? Wow. A lot of these things I can only, um, I can only put into perspective my own experience, right? Mm. And I'm getting close to retirement right now. Um, so I'm going to use that as an example. I've definitely been given some bad advice. Hopefully, you know, in my early years, in my teens, and in my early 20s and 30s, I've kind of tried to forget about most of that and kind of push it aside, especially being a bomb disposal expert. Is, you know, you only want to get good advice because sometimes you only get one shot at these things. But getting ready to retire in the, in the military, um, I get told because I'm in a unique position, um, because I'm a special operations guy, that um, my next career is in the bag. All I have to do is show up. Hey, you got this incredible resume. You've done all these amazing things, work with all these amazing people, done all this stuff, man. You're going to be a huge success story, right? All you have to do is show up. And that is BS, you know, and, and I see it because I see my teammates that, that are far, far superior to me, done way more important things, 
more combat operations, saved more lives, done more great things than I ever have. And they get out and they don't have the bachelor's degree. They don't have the master's degree. They didn't get the LinkedIn profile and start networking. Right. And, and they struggle. And these are people that work directly for the president of the United States at the White House as his EOD operating supervisor. Right? I did the same thing. Work directly for the president. Doesn't mean anything. Hey, guess what? I disarmed bombs overseas and IEDs and, you know, saved people from dying and did all these things. And well, hey, that's great, Cliff. What can you do for my company? We don't do that for a living. How does that translate? Right. So the bad advice I got was just, hey, man, you're going to be fine. You know, mm -hmm. so I, I, you know, I got my undergraduate degree before I came in, but I just finished my master's degree not long ago. I did that while I was on active duty. I did that because I wanted that piece of paper, which in my opinion, a master's degree now is what a bachelor's degree was 10 years ago, you know? And so I did it because I, I thought that was gonna be something that would help me. I thought it would be something that would also, you know, just, I, I never wanna stop learning. And I've been doing that for 20 years in EOD and I have to translate that. Um, but, you know, so I, I did that. I got on LinkedIn early and started connecting with as many people that were like-minded as I could. And I try to share meaningful content. Some people I upset and that's okay because I'm not afraid to do that. There's some soft people in this world and they need to toughen up. Um, mm -hmm. And that's okay. I can be the guy to do that. Um, but I do like to, to meet, you know, these people and to communicate because I mean, what it, I think it's 75% of jobs and don't quote me on that because I'm terrible at statistics, but they're, they're all in house. They're all in house hires. You know, so so get that network. I mean, I play golf because I'm old and it's fun and I've gotten more job offers on the golf course than I ever have through any type of a resume or thinking about getting out and talking to somebody. And I ask them, hey, do you want to see my resume? And, no, man, I, I play golf for you for four hours a day, man. You're good. Right. And that's what that is. You know, networking is a very powerful thing. So assuming that I'm quote unquote good because I ran the gauntlet in my military career. That means nothing in my civilian career. And I shouldn't get upset because of that. I wouldn't expect for you to be the COO that you are and to come into my community and think you're going to get an advanced rank because you did wonderful in your career. That's silly. It's foolish. So why would I do the same? Hey, I'm a senior NCO. I did all these years of special ops. I need a management position immediately. No, not, not really. I mean, maybe I advanced a little quicker because I know the basics and the understanding behind that. Sure. But I don't know how your business works. I've got to learn those ropes and I've got to be humble and willing to go and start at the bottom. And a lot of, a lot of advanced, you know, senior military guys get upset about that. Mm. And they shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. My grandfather was fortunate enough that when he retired from the Navy, he moved into a role with the Department of Energy. And um, and then he great went on to... Say again? Yeah. Great corporation, by the way. We do a lot of stuff with DOE and they're fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. He loved his time there. He was just telling me last week uh, about some crazy, crazy experiences he had when he was yeah. working with them and doing with, uh, you know, our nuclear response back then. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. But, um, but then he went on to work for Real Home Earth. Depot. Yeah. Yeah. So, Absolutely. you know, and probably as happy as he's ever been in his entire life. Oh yeah. He loved it. He loved it. I mean, he retired and, you know, with home with my, with my grandma, but you know, it doesn't always translate perfectly. Same as, you know, it's, it's just like switching an industry. It is. You know, you know he worked at Home Depot. Grandma wanted him to get out of the house. 
<laughs> you know, that, that honey-do list, you know, got taken care of quick and she couldn't stand seeing him walk around all day <laughs> pulling about. So she said, you got to go to Home Depot, man. Yeah, you got to go get a job. I can't be with you, you all do day. Something. I mean, have a reason to get up in the morning, <laughs> right? Whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me, what is the best advice anyone ever gave you? Something that guides you through life still to this day? There's a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson that says, what you are, shout so loudly in my ears, I cannot hear what you say. And I love that. Mm. Because in life, there are a lot of people that are full of it. And everybody sees it, right? They see the hypocrisy. And so as easy as I can come on the podcast and I can talk about these things and these experiences, if I don't live those, you know, then, then you're not going to believe anything I do, especially once you get to know me, right? I can fool you for a while, but once you start to know who I am and how I react, then you'll understand that I'm full of it as well. Right. So I, I really like just trying to not be that hypocrite and trying to be that person that I would want. I would want to follow. Mm. Right. Be the kind of leader that you would, you know, want for, for others to follow you. Right. Um, and essentially it's, it's that simple. I mean, all the things I've done in my career, which, you know, are limited compared to other people's in, in my community. Um, it all boils down to to culture, um, to leadership and followership and knowing which one of those you are on that given day, right? Being a good person, doing the right thing. I mean, these are cliche things, but I mean, can you go to bed at night and feel good about, you know, what you did that day, right? Did you take advantage of somebody? Did you do the right thing? Even if it wasn't the popular thing, right? Is it well with your soul? And and I think that's really what it boils down to, right? So I guess the best piece of advice I could give is just, you know, be a good person, whatever that looks like for you. And it really is that simple. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to get rich off of being a good person, but I'll tell you what, man, I don't, I've never met an old man um, on his deathbed that you asked, hey, what would you do differently? You say, you know what, man, I wish I'd have made more money. Yeah. Right. What do you hear? You hear men say, I wish I'd have been nicer to my family. Mm. I wish I would have spent more time with my kids. I wish I wouldn't have worked so much. Right. So be a good person, whatever that looks like for you. I will go to my deathbed knowing that there are more people on this planet that I've saved than I've killed. Mm. By a, by a long shot, thankfully. And that was my niche. I wasn't supposed to be a doctor. I wasn't supposed to be in healthcare. I was supposed to be a lifesaver, but in a different venue, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and it wasn't, I didn't intend for that to work out the way it did. Right. It was, it was shown for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I just was intelligent enough. If, if that's the word you want to use to, acknowledge that and not deny it mm. right i look back at my career and i think i'm crazy for the things i've done but i wouldn't change anything 
Well, hey, that is all the time we have for this episode of the Try, Fail, Learn podcast. I hope that you learned something. I hope you got some value and some wisdom out of this episode. If you did, please don't forget to leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps us grow the audience. And we'll catch you next time. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.